Hey guys, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. It is great to see you all here. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, make sure you keep it open to Mark chapter 2 as we are going to be looking at that today. I'm going to pray and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we look at this passage that Jesus will leap off the pages of the Scripture and he will reveal himself to us in such a way that we not only are motivated to change, but we will change. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be so at work through your word today that you would change us wherever we're at. We pray for those people here who may not know you. We pray that they would come to know you as this word gets grafted into their hearts. Lord, for those of us who do know you and love you, we pray that you would help us to love you more, to worship you more as as we encounter you in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About three or four years ago, I I just put this post on Facebook about Jesus. I forget what I said, but it was one of those posts that, that created this storm of controversy because there was two friends from America and this is around the time that uh, Trump and Biden the Trump and Biden election and one the the friend one of the friends is very progressive right the other one is very conservative politically and the progressive said do you know that Jesus was progressive that's all they said and the next one said actually um Jesus was very conservative and they just went back and forth. The, fun, the irony was that the, neither of them were Christians. One was arguing one thing and the other one was arguing the other. Is Jesus progressive or conservative? Now, one of the things I didn't want to do, I, I just get out of this. I don't want to kind of have fights on Facebook or anything anymore. So I didn't say anything. But what I really wanted to say is this that I think Jesus would be offensive to both. Jesus would confront both. Jesus was neither conservative nor progressive, but he was controversial. And he was controversial back in his day. But here's the thing. If Jesus was around today, he would be controversial today too. No matter who you are and no matter what your beliefs are, Jesus has the ability, in fact, Jesus does this all the time, he says things that gets under our skin, that gets under our skin. I remember I was speaking to a bunch of people when I was going to Macquarie Uni and uh, we were having lunch together and one, one girl was talking about Jesus and she said, I really like Jesus, he makes me all warm and fuzzy inside. And there was another girl who used to be a Christian and she said, if Jesus makes you warm and fuzzy inside all the time, you haven't encountered the real Jesus. Because Jesus has the ability always to actually get at the issues of our lives and say, actually, you're not really seeing what's at stake here. And when he shows us what is at stake, he actually can, it can hurt. It can be quite offensive. And he's going to do that today. Jesus is going to be controversial again today. And here's the thing. As, as Jesus leaps off the pages of the gospel, uh, as he leaps off the pages of Mark chapter 2 today, as he confronts us, what are you going to do if you are confronted? 
What are you going to do if Jesus says something that actually is a bit frustrating to you? What are you going to do with Jesus, the ultimate controversialist? What we're going to see is that even though Jesus pushes on areas of our lives which may be tender, even though Jesus is controversial and still is controversial, he's going to actually give us what we really want and what we really need. We're going to see three things as we look at this passage, and you might have got an outline as you came in. The, the outline's there for you to take notes if you want, but it, these three points are out on the outline too. Here they are. We're going to see the problem we don't see, the welcome we all want, and the person that delivers us all, uh, delivers it all. The problem we don't see, the welcome we all want, and the person that delivers it all. So let's have a look at the first point, the problem we don't see. Now, what I want you to do as we look at this passage, let's have a look at uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 1, and let's have a look at the problem we don't see. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Now you read that and here's the thing. Think, put yourself into the shoes of the paralyzed man. You, you are there, you've been paralyzed for years, if not your whole life. And Jesus, here's Jesus' words to you. Son, your sins are forgiven. What would you be thinking? I think I'd be thinking, hey, I'm um, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving my sins. That's really, really great. But actually, man, I'm, I, I still can't walk. I'm still paralyzed. And the other question is, as you read through Mark's gospel, as you read through all four gospels, actually, Jesus actually just heals people without so much of a thought or a conversation. Why does he say your sins are forgiven here? I think he's trying to say two things. He's trying to say something to the paralyzed man, and he's trying to say something to the religious leaders. We're going to see what he says to the religious leaders later. See, I dare say the paralyzed man thought that if, if only I can walk, if only I could walk, my life will be complete. If only I could walk, my life will be so much better. And Jesus is saying there is a bigger problem in your life that is far bigger than whether you can walk or not. In fact, you wanting to walk might be the biggest problem of all. You see, if you're paralysed, and I've spoken to a couple of paralysed people, they would give anything to be not paralysed. This man would give anything to be not paralysed. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying, mate, Mr. Paralysed Man, you are trying to find happiness, contentment, everything in your ability to walk. And actually, there's so much more 
to this, what is happening here, than you actually realize. You are trying to find happiness and whether you can walk where there is a far deeper issue. And here's the irony. If Jesus just healed this guy without doing deep spiritual surgery, in a month, in a year, in 10 years' time, somewhere down the future, in the future, this man will be just unhappy again. Because his biggest problem is not the fact that he can't walk. It's actually something deeper. One one of the things uh, that is happening in the Western world is there's an epidemic of people getting everything that they want in life and being radically unhappy. I remember uh, running into a friend of mine last year and uh, we were talking about how life is going. And he said, I've got, I've got the job that I wanted. I'm married. I, I, I've got, you know, to a beautiful woman. Uh, I've got uh, kids who, who are generally obedient sometimes. And, you know, I've got all these things. I go overseas. And he talked about how great his life was. And then he sighed at the end of it all. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, you've got all this together. It seems like you've got everything you want. Why the sigh? He goes, I don't know. I, I, I'm actually... I've got all this, but I'm deeply unhappy, and it's an epidemic. In fact, I found this article from The Cut. This is an article from 2017. A woman uh, wrote in, and she basically said, I have everything I've ever wanted, but I'm still unhappy. On your outline, here's what she says. This is half of her letter. She says this. Dear Polly, I am a 35-year-old woman with an ostensibly good life. I'm conventionally attractive well-educated from a racial background that does not get excessively discriminated against in my country and from enough money that I have never known true deprivation. I have a well-paying job with benefits in a glamorous and creative industry that I've worked my butt off to get after suddenly pivoting my way, uh, sorry, pivoting away from a more stable and lucrative career path in my mid-20s. I live with my boyfriend, a wickedly smart and enormously kind man who shares the same twisted sense of humour as mine and thinks the world of me. I've travelled around the world and managed to make friends everywhere I go. Even though I'm introverted and often feel awkward and unsure of myself in social situations, many people would say I'm funny and charming. I've found the courage and strength to break off toxic relationships that were not improving despite all my best efforts, chiefly those with my mother and my ex-husband. I have done so, so much work to understand myself better and break unhealthy mindsets and habits. I am finally at a place in my life where I can do almost anything I want to do and yet... I am unhappy. I wonder if there's anyone here who feels that way, who's actually got everything in this world that they ever wanted, and for some reason, I'm unhappy. And here's the problem. Our problem is we weren't meant to find happiness in the good things of this world. When we find happiness in the good things of this world... If we think, I only have this, or I've got all this, and therefore I should be happy, we found an idol. And an idol is something we look to for ultimate happiness that is not God. And so we actually need God to deal with that sin in our life. The problem is we worship the gift rather than the gift giver. We worship the creation rather than the creator. And so when Jesus says to the guy, uh, your sins are forgiven, I think he's actually saying, 
You've got an idol. You are thinking that you'll be happy if you can walk again. But you don't realize that that is cutting you off. That sin of idolatry is cutting you off from your creator. I need to forgive you. Therefore, because of that forgiveness, you will know your creator. And when you know your creator, you will know true happiness, true contentment. He is saying, in forgiving you, I am dealing with your blockage between you and God. And in doing so, you can know God, and that is why you were created. And so that's why I'm doing it for you. That's why I'm not healing you first, because there's a far deeper issue. I wonder if you realize that the biggest problem in your life is not your spouse, not your job, not anything external to you. But it is us, when we find our happiness in other things, that can't deliver. And so what does, what does Jesus do for us? He comes and dies for that sin, so we're forgiven. So that we can know God and find joy and contentment and happiness in him and him alone. Do you realize that there is a problem we don't see? Can you see it? And have you dealt with it in Jesus? But there's also a second point in this passage. There's the welcome we all want. The welcome we all want. Let's have a look at the next story in chapter 2. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Now, what you've got to realize is this is ridiculously scandalous. Now, now in today's world, a, a tax collector, someone who works at the tax office, they're nice people, right? Back in Jesus' day, they were hated. They were absolutely hated because they were generally Jewish people who worked for the conquering Romans and actually took money from their people to give to the Romans. It's a bit like this, right? Imagine if New Zealand... Right, The big superpower of New Zealand came and took over Australia, invaded Australia, and the person sitting next to you was employed by the New Zealand government to get tax from you and give it to the Kiwis. Who would like that person? Generally, we wouldn't, right? Because... Why are you giving, why are you taking money from me to give to our enemies? And, and not only that, the tax collectors in Jesus' day were, were men who would actually take a little bit more. So the Romans would say, hey, you've got to get uh, so much money from each person. And they would say, actually, I've got to, you know, maybe $2. Well, actually, oh, sorry, the Romans had five. And they would pocket the extra money. And so these people were absolutely hated. And back in Jesus' day, here's the thing. If you sat down and had lunch 
with somebody or dinner with somebody, what you are saying is you approve of them. That, that they are part of your kind of circle of friends and you love them. And, and that's why the Pharisees are going off. What, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Because Jesus, you're approving of what they do basically in this day. And notice what Jesus says in verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who, who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come, uh, sorry, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. You ever gone to the doctor? If you've been well, you ever rocked up to the doctor and go, No, I feel fantastic, doc. The doc would go, Well, why are you wasting my time, right? No, you come to me with you, when you're sick. And Jesus is saying, Just like that, he's come. He's come, not for the righteous, not for the religious people that have got their lives together, that feel like they've got their lives together and don't need God. He's come for those people who are moral failures. For moral failures. I dare say there are some people here that just feel like, oh man, I've got so much sin in my life and I've, I've screwed up so much that God would never love me and accept me. I remember talking to a, to a guy a few years ago. He came to church for a bit and, and he left church because he just felt like God could never accept him. No matter what I said to him, I said, no, 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 Jesus loves to forgive you. That's why he came. He just couldn't get his heart around it. He felt condemned all the time because of the mistakes that he's made. And yet, do you see what Jesus is saying here? If that is you, Jesus came for you. Maybe you're saying, well, well, Hans, uh, I, keep, I feel like I keep sinning and there's one particular sin that I do over and over and over again. Guess what? Jesus came for you, to love you, to forgive you, to welcome you. But, but some of you guys are going, well, well, Hans, I feel like I'm the worst person in the world. Well, guess what? Jesus came for you, to love you, to welcome you, to forgive you. Oh, Hans, but I, I'm ashamed of what I have done. I have hurt people. Uh, profoundly, well, guess what? Jesus came for you to love you, to forgive you, to die for you. I think one of the reasons why we find this concept so hard that Jesus will continue to forgive or, can, or forgive really big things is because forgiveness is really hard. Forgiveness is really hard. Let, let, let me tell you a story about my family, right? This is me and my beautiful kids. This is on Father's Day. And uh, if you don't know my kids, that's Niels with the long hair. That's Emma. And that's Elijah. I think he's being a rabbit. I don't know why. Um, but yeah. yeah. Now, my two boys, sometimes they act like they're the best of friends. Other times, they just like try and hurt each other all the time, right? And one day, one, one will hurt the other, and then the other day, it'll switch, and I'm always having to, like, you know, you know break up fights or, or say, hey, you shouldn't have done that, that kind of thing. One time, one of the boys hurt the other. And, and the, the one that was hurt was really angry. And the one that hurt the other said to the hurt brother, you need to forgive me because that's what Jesus would do. And so the one that was hurt said, I forgive you. And I was like, I don't think he has. But anyway, we were getting ready for dinner. We said, okay, sit up for dinner. And I said, who wants to say grace? 
And the one that was hurt said, I'll say grace. And I thought, oh, man, this is going to go bad. But okay, you can say grace. And he said, dear Jesus, thank you for, uh, thank you for this food. And he said, thank you for, he mentions his brother's name, and thank you for his stupid head. And I was like, you shouldn't have said that. He got angry. He walked to his room. And I went into his room. And he was in tears. And I sat down next to him and I said, so tell me what happened there. And he said, forgiveness is really hard. And I said, why do you think that? He goes, because I really want to hurt him. And I know if I forgive him, I can't do that. Forgiveness is, is so hard, isn't it? Some of you, some of us have been really hurt. And so to forgive... You know how hard that is. Or, or maybe it's not that you've been really hurt. Maybe you've just had to forgive somebody over and over and over and over for the same thing. And you're just tired of forgiveness. And so therefore, because that's you and I, we think God is like us. And he's tired of forgiving us. He's tired of welcoming us. But have a look once again at verse 17. Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus comes to forgive. That's his whole mission. Jesus is not discouraged by your sin. He is not tired of your sin. There's a sense in which he's energized for it. Because his heart beats with, with the same drum... Of, the, of his heavenly father, who is a God who loves to forgive over and over and over and over and over again. See, the beautiful thing of what, what Jesus is saying here is this, that Jesus knows everything that you've ever done, good and bad, even the things that you wouldn't tell anybody. Jesus knows all that, and loves you and forgives you all the same. And don't we want, don't we want someone in our lives who knows everything that we've ever done, no matter how bad it is, and loves us and forgives us all the same? That's what Jesus, that's the welcome that Jesus gives us. That's the welcome that we all want. We want someone to know us that deeply and love us and forgive us no matter what. And that's what you get in Jesus. And and we see that Jesus came for sinners because of where he ends up. He ends up on a cross dying for sinners, for you and for me. Excuse me, forgiving us. The welcome that we all want will be found in Jesus because Jesus knows us, everything that we've ever done, and loves us and forgives us no matter what. But the question is, can he deliver it? And that's why we're going to our third point. Here's the person that delivers it all. I'll show you why I think that is. Let's go back to the first story. And let's, ha- let's see why Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven for the religious leaders. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
But back in Jesus' day, there was this idea that God was the only one who could forgive sins. And so it's God's prerogative to forgive. It's a bit like this. Well, um, imagine this is a hypothetical situation, but imagine at our, our leadership team meeting, um, Tim, Haran, and I were having this conversation. What you've got to realise about both Tim and Haran is they don't just look smart. They are actually smart. They're smarter than me, far smarter. Like, no one's shocked by that, right? And anyway, Tim and I, and this is a hypothetical situation, but Tim and I have a disagreement. And, and when Tim and I have a disagreement, this is not hypothetical. Tim is generally right because he's smarter than me. And so I'm frustrated by this, right? And so I do what any loving Christian boss would do to their, to their associate when they're smarter than me and they're winning an argument. I, I just punch him. And he's on the ground, blood's gushing out the top of his head. And he goes, oh, well, Hans Christensen punched me. I'm still alive. How does that happen? And then Hauron comes and says, don't worry, Hans, I forgive you. (laughs) What would Tim be thinking right now? Tim would be thinking, wait, uh, Hans punched me. And how can Hauron forgive Hans? Because the sin is not against Hauron. It's against me. Only I can forgive. And in the Bible... Sin is primarily against God, and therefore it's God's prerogative to forgive. And that's why when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, they're going, hang on, hang on, only God can forgive sins. That's his job. That's not a man's job. And did you see what Jesus says in verse 8? Read it with me. Jesus says, hey, sorry, you've got it all wrong. I'm not claiming to be God. There's been a mistake here. No, that's not what he says at all. Have a look at verse 8 with me. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. That just freaks you out. Jesus is reading their minds here. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Wouldn't that freak you out just a bit? You're thinking things in your head. And Jesus says, let me answer what you're thinking. Just, just would freak you out just a little bit. And he says this, which is easy to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. What's easy to say? Well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Here's why. It's easy to say that because if I forgive you of your sins, nothing really changes. You can't see the sins forgiven. But if I say, if you're paralyzed and I say to you, get up, take your mat and walk, well, guess what? You're going to see whether I, can, I have the power to do that very quickly, very quickly. And so here's what, why Jesus says, verse 10, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in few, full view of them all. Jesus is saying, guess what? I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. I am the Son of Man. I have that authority. And you see that I have the authority because I can do the impossible in front of you. I have just proven that I am God in the flesh. I am God in the flesh. But he actually proves that he claims to be God in other passages too. Have a look in verses 18 to 20. He's talking about fasting here. And in verse 19... Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's still with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. Now, you're going, Jesus, you're talking about fasting, you're talking about being at a wedding. What are you talking about? What you've got to realize, and this is what the teachers of the law would have realized, is that in the Old Testament, God is seen as a bridegroom. And Israel is the bride. 
And so Jesus is saying, while I'm here as the bridegroom, as God in the flesh, well, why would we fast? We've got to celebrate. Then in verse 23, have a look at it with me. On the Sabbath, they're going through, they're picking uh, grain because they're hungry, his disciples. And then what happens? The Pharisees say, why are you doing these things? Now, in verses 25 and 26, he goes back to David. But I want to show you in this last verse what happens. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's once again calling himself the Son of Man, that great exalted figure from Daniel 7, that godlike figure. But here's the logic of the first century. If the Son of Man, if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, the most important day of the week where you worship God, he's Lord of the whole week. He's Lord of everything. And he is saying, you're speaking to God here. You're speaking to God here. The reason why Jesus can give us the welcome that we want and deal with a problem that we don't see is he is God in the flesh. And that's a very controversial claim, isn't it? It's a very controversial claim because most people don't like the fact that Christians believe that Jesus is God because it's very exclusive. A lot of people would say that Jesus was just a great teacher. But I want to say, actually, if Jesus said the things that he said and he was just a great teacher, well, I actually don't think he was a great teacher. Here's here's what C.S. Lewis says. And it's on your outline. He says this, If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, Are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, My son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, Are you Zeus? Are you a god? He would, have laughed, he would have laughed at you if you had gone to Muhammad, the great prophet of Islam, and asked, are you Allah, are you God? He would have first rent his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucian, uh, Confucius, are you heaven? I think he probably would have replied, remarks which are not in, accord, sorry, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The, the idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying no, no great teacher of the religions would ever claim to be God, but that's what Jesus is saying. And if he's not, he's actually delusional. He should be locked up in a psych ward. But if he is God, you should worship him and follow him. One thing we shouldn't shouldn't do today with Jesus is come up with this patronising nonsense of saying he's just a great teacher. Because a great teacher saying the things that he would have said is not great. He's either delusional or I would say extremely evil. Because he's saying to us, put your faith in me and I will come through for you, knowing that he can't. And that's evil. But in this passage, he actually proves that he's God. He raised a man back to walking. All the way through the Gospels, he does miraculous things. At the end of the Gospels, he 
He's raised from the dead, which vindicates everything that he said. He not only claims to be God, but he proves it by what he does. If he is God, if he is God, you and I get the forgiveness we really need and the welcome that that we really want. If he's not God, we don't get any of that. We don't get the forgiveness we really need. We don't get the welcome that we really want. We're we're mired in this state of maybe having all the things that we want but never truly happy. We're mired in this state where we don't know what life is all about. But we don't have to be mired in that state because Jesus has shown that he is God in the flesh and he calls us to follow him. So the question is, who do you think Jesus is? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus leaping off the pages of this, of this passage right into, into our consciousness, right into our imagination, into our hearts and our minds. Lord, thank you that Jesus deals with the biggest problem in our lives, our rejection of you. Thank you that he gives us the welcome we really want. Thank you that he knows everything about us and loves us and forgives us and welcomes us all the same. Lord, thank you that we can trust in him because he's God. I pray that all of us would do that, not only today, but this week and the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.